As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and Happy New Year to my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? Happy New Year, John. 2023 was great, and here's to an even better 2024. Yeah, and we're jumping straight in with the good stuff in 2024. This is a podcast that is all about rest defense. It's a concept, tactically, that people have been talking about a lot in the last few seasons. But what we've done is we've brought in one of the world experts on rest defense. Stephen Russell is an academic who's just written a master's thesis on the concept. So we're here to talk all things rest defense, what it is, what it means, what coaches can learn from it, why it's important. You've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? For me, it's kind of the two key variables that Stephen talked about, compact and proximity, the pros and cons of each, and, and basically what exactly each are used for. Yeah, and we actually end up straying into the weird and wonderful by the very end, talking about how it is that we even analyze football from a qualitative and quantitative uh, perspective. So lots of really fun stuff for us to get into there. So hopefully everyone isn't feeling too lethargic after their Christmases and their New Year's. Uh, but the best thing for us to do, as it always is in these podcasts, is for us to just jump straight over to talk to our guest. So Stephen Russell is going to talk to us all about rest defense. Stephen, it's great having you in the studio. Thank you for having me, John. I'm really excited to have come all the way down to London to see you. Yeah, and uh, we have a really interesting topic to talk about. But before we get into that, why don't you just give our listeners just a little bit of background on what you do so they have a bit of context to know what it is that you're going to say to us. Yeah, so for work, I, um, I work in football probability, which is a lot of like quantitative analysis. Um, but around that, I have just finished my undergraduate degree and my master's degree, um, both which I did dissertations in kind of like performance analysis areas. Um, I'm looking to start a PhD next year, which hopefully should be approved soon. Um, and it all kind of follows the same theme towards like quantitative analysis in football, um, how we can sort of like learn things about performance. Um, but with this idea of like complexity, what sort of things we can and can't learn with the sort of mass and mass of data that we are now dealing with. Um, and specifically, my master's dissertation was about rest defense, which I thought would be a really fun topic to come and talk about. Yeah, and that's what we are going to talk about today. So to summarize what you just said about the area that you're working on, you're saying there's a, in football, we amass a load of data and football is a very complex sport. And often when we're doing analysis of that data, what we're doing is simplifying things in order to make it manageable. And you're exploring the concept of taking lots of complex data, making it simple and what impact that, that has on our analysis. Yeah, totally. So like whenever you have 23 objects or 22 players in a ball moving around, before you even factor in anything else, that's already massively complex because the relationships that different objects can have with each other is already massive. And when you're recording them move, moving through time and space over 90 minutes, that's a lot of information. But then, like you say, it's, it's reductive because as soon as you turn that into data points, you're taking a 3D person who moves and has a body shape and direction and dynamics and reducing them to just a dot. And then the problem from there is that we already have masses and masses of data just from recording their positions. To turn that into something that you can understand, a coach could understand, an analyst could, and then a player could understand, you then have to simplify that further. And what, what we've sort of seen 
over the years, and especially like in mainstream um, football analysis now, we've seen a lot of like modeling, like expected goals, possession value stuff coming in where we're trying to take this tiny subsection of really complex data and turn it into where we found the answer. My kind of point, and we can talk through it in a little bit more detail, but my sort of overall guiding principle of my thesis was that we can't really do that. We can't just jump from, here's a very simplified subsection of data, here's the answer to the footballing meta. Mm. And we were talking before we went on air, you were saying that when you do tracking data, which is tracking the 23 objects on a football field uh, relative to one another, you end up with over 8 million data points for a game. Yeah, so um, Track160 kindly offered me tracking data for my dissertation. And on average, most games are about 8 million rows, which then I guess you can multiply that out by all the different players and stuff um, they also tracked like officials and stuff so before you even get into the fact that that's already reductive you're already dealing with an amount of data that it's really hard to interpret like even the stuff I did you know it's a drop in the ocean of what you could do with that amount of data so then to try and simplify that and say we found the answer is a problem so we'll get into what this actually means but my kind of takeaway from that is instead of jumping from here's the data here's how you win games you can break that primary objective into sub-objectives Here's the data. Here's how you could achieve different things based on the unique constraints that you operate within. And then you can try and fit that into a wider plan. And I think we're going to start talking about rest defense from the off here. But I think just to clarify what we're saying about tracking data, tracking data is very different to event data, which is what most data sources that we'll see in football are. So event data is just when there's an event on a pitch, a tackle, a shot, uh, a cross, a header, whatever, it then gets logged as an event. Um, Whereas when we're talking about tracking data, we're saying that I think something like four times a second, we're taking the the spatial location of the 23 objects on the pitch and noting them down so that any moment on the field you should be able to say at this time frame this is where everyone was relative to one another so uh, just as, as as a way of clarity for, for our listeners so that they know what they're talking about here but the idea then with tracking data is that because you are tracking everything on the pitch you should have a much better way of understanding particularly spatial uh, relations between players so Traditionally, it's been very difficult to, uh, for example, analyse centre-backs because often centre-backs, what they're doing is making sure they're controlling space. And it's very hard to do that with event data. So tracking data, the whole idea there is is to give us another insight into, into what's going on. So that's just the background of, of the difference between tracking data and event data. But you did mention that you've just completed a master's thesis on rest defence, and that's what we're going to dig over in the course of the next hour or so. In order to be able to talk about rest defense, we need to explain to the listener what rest defense is. And I think um, it's, it's got a bit of a habit, rest defense, of being a, a tricky one to understand. So how would you go around explaining what the concept of rest defense is? So I think that there's kind of like two primary definitions that kind of get used interchangeably. And they're similar, but there is a difference. Um, one is just your general positioning in possession, but with reference to the transition that could follow that. So essentially, you have the ball, but then what are you doing to prepare for when you lose the ball because the other team will attack and you have to then defend that? The other more specific definition that gets used quite a lot, um, and I think this one is probably more frequently, is the group of players at the base of your like team while you're in possession. So you'll see um, a lot of like sort of positional play type teams, you know, a Pep Guardiola team, where they'll maybe have like five players at the base that kind of stay together while the other five outfield players go and attack. And that would refer just to that substructure at the base. Yeah, and I, I think Pep Guardiola team is a very good example of that, right? Because often what you'll see with the Pep Guardiola team is they're going to try and retain possession of the ball as long as possible. They're going to try and squeeze the opposition back into their own third. Uh, and often they'll do that by having the ability to relay the ball from one side of the pitch to the other through the, the players at the back. So you'll often see two centre-backs very high up the field in the opposition half and then a few players in front of them. And that would be... the they're the players who, yes, they're involved with trying to keep possession of the ball, move the ball from one side to the other, but they also have a secondary task, which is this is a very aggressive positioning from Manchester City in this instance. If the ball is lost, it could be quite uh, calamitous for the team if, if they get counterattacked on. So rest defence is talking about how do we think about our possession phase, uh, where the players are when they're in, the, in those sorts of situations. So that if the ball is turned over, they're best positioned in order to stop that being too dangerous right yeah exactly and like you you can go back through history and 
everyone has always been aware that there's a chance you lose the ball and then have to defend, right? That's why goalkeepers don't just run up and play as strikers. So since football has, you know, begun, people have been aware this is a thing. But then we've seen sort of trends that centre around more spatial control, pitch control, that have led to a different understanding, and I would argue a more developed understanding, of what you should be doing with rest defence. So if you contrast to, you know, you could even go to like early 2000s football, it was a little bit more chaotic, a little bit more open. We're obviously using Pep Guardiola as an example. If you look at his sort of compactness at the base, then you sort of see when they lose the ball, the other team struggle to play through the middle, have to go around. And it's about this sort of idea that has developed through that, which is why it's become a relevant thing to study. So there's two different ideas, I think, that you mentioned in terms of the history of rest defence becoming Mm. a thing. One of them is that concept that we've talked about there for particularly Pep Guardiola teams, which is like ultimate control, having more possession than the opposition, holding the ball high up the field, far away from your own goal with the threat that you can be counter-attacked on. But also I think you talk a little bit about the rise of counter-pressing as well. So teams, I guess in in those instances, what you're seeing is a little bit more direct play, the possibility then of losing the ball um, because because it's a bit more risky playing direct and yeah. passes forward into into congested areas and then losing the ball as well. So uh, concept of counter-pressing, but also uh, being able to stop uh, counter-attacks as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And these things have massively shaped the way we perceive these things, right? Because you will have, especially like Germany 2014, as that sort of developed from there and then bled into the mainstream over here, you've got this idea that if you lose the ball, it can be beneficial to just win that back. So then that means while you have the ball, you have to be thinking, if we lost the ball right this second, how are we placed to win it back? So then you had the idea of like, well, what's your access to the ball like? How close are you? What's your proximity like? And teams are much more careful of sort of their distances um, regarding like their in-possession compactness. So they became more and more compact. So rather than trying to stretch play, they then sort of brought play in so that if they lost the ball, they had more players able to attack the ball, mm. win it back. And that's still a rest defence concept, just in a very slightly like sort of different way to how Pep Guardiola might arrange that. So one of the things we talk about a lot at the moment is is the concept of inverting fullbacks or mm. in the case of Pep Guardiola, pushing a centre-back into midfield as well. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of in-possession reasons why you might do that, but one of the out-of-possession uh, upsides, I suppose, or benefits that you get from that is that you are en- uh, including more players in the centre of the field. And uh, often with Pep Guardiola team, we'll see, you talked about that base structure of, yeah. of players deeper in the field. Often they're quite narrow. You'll have your two centre-backs and then you'll m- maybe have uh, a central midfielder with with uh, a couple of full-backs inverting around them or maybe you'll just have one full-back inverting. So you'll have two yeah. centre-backs, a full-back and a couple of players in front of them. That is important because you're getting compaction and the idea then is that you're overloading the area of the pitch where it's the path, well, theoretically the path of yep. least resistance to the goal if they win win the ball back. So the idea idea there is about intru- introducing longer distances between where the ball is and, and where the goal is, right? Yeah, and like I think if you break this down like even to the most simple terms, you've got to think football's chaotic. So the ball could potentially drop anywhere where you don't have the time to change your position. So if you have more compactness in one space, then you always have a player closer to where the ball could potentially end up. Mm. So if you have three players equidistant within the space of sort of like the edge of one box to the edge of the box on the other side, then you've got more access to the ball if it drops anywhere than if you had two players covering that same space. Mm. So this is the sort of idea. And then, like I mentioned, sub-objectives. You've got this idea of you've got access to the ball, you could try and regain the ball, but then you've also got the fact, as you said, it would be beneficial to play right through the middle. If you can't do that and have to go out on the wings, that's a delay. So then you look at the duration of a transition, and if you can delay, you've got more time to recover and get players back. Mm. So then you have these different sort of, I guess, competing to an extent, sub-objectives that would all be informed just by how you arrange this rest defence structure. So there'll be some teams who will be trying to slow the ball down so that yeah. their teams can drop into a better defensive shape. There's going to be other teams who are going to try and win the ball back as soon as possible. As Absolutely, well. yeah. yeah. We've talked a lot about Manchester City, uh, but the team that you follow is Celtic. Yes. They had Ange Postacoglu until recently. Sorry to bring that up to you yeah. again. Um <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about how uh, the rest defence was structured for Ange at, at Celtic and how that was different from what you might see from, uh, or similar, I suppose, to what we might see from Pep Guardiola. Yes, yeah, so I think um, I'm going to introduce a couple of shapes here. We'll talk later about how useful it is to actually use shapes to reference this, but just as a sort of illustrative description, 
people talk often about a 2-3 or a 3-2, which would be if you split the rest defence into two lines, then you would have either three sort of like on that back line close to your goalkeeper and two in front of them or inverted the other way around. And what you would see a lot of the time when Celtic were attacking under Ange Postacoglu is you would see this 2-3 shape. So what would happen is the two centre-backs would sit back to cover, the two full-backs would come inside next to the pivot player and you would have this shape. Now, it's not static, a fullback can move forward and it can shift across or if they're reacting to something they can move but generally that's the sort of base you would see and the main principle here was that Celtic wanted to be direct in possession but also quick to win the ball back they didn't want to end up with the other team having the ball for too long and especially in Scotland when you've got superior players that works really well so the idea was if we can get the line closest to the opposition just packed out with more players then wherever the ball ends up wherever the opposition try and go we can win the ball. And then there's other sort of constraints, things that feed into this, just with the fact that there's not that many players in Scotland that would be able to carry the ball like 70 yards past Celtic's high line to the box and then get off a shot. So that ended up really beneficial. And what's kind of happened as Rogers has come in is we've opted for a more control-based approach. So rather than this chaotic, you know, direct to the front line, if we lose the ball, we'll win it back. We've ended with this more like sort of passive, we're going to play around, we're going to make sure the opposition don't touch the ball, I'm going to try and move forward. And the biggest sort of change you've seen there is Alistair Johnston, Celtic's right back, has dropped off a little bit. So now it's more of like a lopsided 3-2. But like we said, it's not just about shape. So what you've also seen is the fullbacks push wider. They're not inverted anymore like they were, like you would see with a Pep Guardiola team or whoever else, which means that we don't have that compactness. So now the objective shifted away from this counter-pressing win the ball back and it's more about how we guard these deeper spaces, which, again, we can get into more detail, but it's not better or worse. It's just a different approach for a different tactical philosophy. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about shape then, uh, because I put out a tweet the other week talking about how when I think about rest defence, I find the concept of 2-3 or 3-2 to be a little bit uh, unhelpful in terms of, I guess, making the jump between what you're going to tell your players is happening and what it looks like when you're observing from the side of a pitch through a TV camera, right? So as you said before, 2-3 and 3-2, very easy to identify these sorts of shapes when you're sitting watching the TV and you can say, well, the two centre-backs are there, both the full-backs are pushed forward, uh, whatever. 3-2, uh, obviously, uh, as you were saying with, with Brendan Rodgers at Celtic now, one of the full-backs is staying a little bit deeper, the other full-back is, is pushing on. Um, I, I find it um, natural to, to talk in those sorts of ways, but you've already talked to us about sub-objectives mm. being the important um, aspect of, of what's going on when it when it comes to coaching and, and explaining what's going on on a football field and... I suppose for me, a lot of this translates it, 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 the way that I think naturally about these things now, or that I'm, I'm trying to think more naturally these days, is about how, if you're a player on the pitch, what, how do you translate those sorts of ideas that we're talking about there to instructions to, to the players? So I actually was uh, chatting to someone who works at a club lower down the, the English leagues, and they said, at our club, the entire principle is the outside centre-backs lock in as tightly as possible, and then we have always uh, a plus one at the back of the pitch, with front and back cover, ideally, if there's one striker. Now, let's just tease that apart. So the idea here is that you're playing with three centre-backs. and The the outside centre-backs are going to lock on tightly to to um, opponents, probably wide players, I'm guessing. Um, and then there's always this need for a plus one at the back. So that means an extra player, an overload at the back. So if the opposition have a striker, you want to make sure that you're going to have two players around that striker, um, if possible. And then front and back cover, ideally, means that you're not standing side by side with the striker. You're having one player sweeping in behind and then one standing in front to make sure that uh, the striker isn't able to, to get the ball. Now that, that person went on to say nothing is nothing as complicated as a 2-3 or a 3-2. I don't think players would follow that and I don't see the relevance. So I wonder how you would how you would talk about the importance of using shape uh, as, as, a, as a way of representing what's going on. I suppose you're just, as you said, it's just a, a, an easy way to visualise what's going on when you're analysing the game from an external point of view. Yeah, that's totally it, right? I think there's a few things to sort of work through. So first, like, I think if you just give the massive information of where players are, like, at different points and stuff, that's really easy to switch off to. It's not a, like an at-a-glance summary. So I think something you could probably relate, uh, relate this to is formation. So you could identify two, three different teams all playing a 4-3-3 shape and they would all look totally different. You might have one that has a false nine, one that has inverted wingers, wh whatever else it might be. One might um, bring the fullbacks inside, one might use two midfielders in the rest defence. You could have three totally unique teams who all play the same quote-unquote formation. 
And that's the same sort of thing here that you can identify these shapes, but it doesn't mean that those shapes necessarily exist or actually impact the game. So um, I spoke about this a little bit in my dissertation um, with how you identify these variables. So when you're trying to tease out different variables for quantitative analysis, you have different types of variable. So they're, they're all quantitative to an extent. I guess you'd say it's maybe a little bit more qualitative if your categories or whatever. But the point is that you have the categorical data of if we said, right, we think there's a 2-3 shape, a 3-2 shape or whatever else, and you might code them numerically to say that's one, that's two, whatever. But then you separated those out and said, I think these exist, so we're going to use that. Or you could use continuous data. And what I mean by that is data that could be measured specifically. So you could have, like I did, a measure for compactness or proximity or whatever else. And that doesn't fit into those. And the main thing here is that um, the point I made in my dissertation was that a Hegelian understanding of stuff like this about how we understand the world around us is that everything is mediated through human understanding. So the example I used in my thesis was if you look at a cloud and think that cloud looks like a dog, at no point in this process has the cloud ever possessed any dog-like qualities. For you, having said that, the cloud doesn't become dog-like. It wasn't dog-like. But you think, that looks like a dog. I recognize that. That helps me. If you were then to try and study this cloud to learn some sort of like universal truths about it, at no point are you going to find out, actually, the cloud's a dog. But probably, I guess. <laughs> um, but the point is that how you frame these variables impacts your analysis. So I think really, really useful for a quick... T tell me about this team. What do they do? Well, they've got a two or three at the base. And then you can make some sort of assumptions. Well, maybe they're trying to counter press. Maybe they want to have an inverted fullback who can bomb through the middle and we can attack that way and do whatever. But then as you start to dig into it, if you force these shapes onto things, then you're going to run into problems because those shapes don't actually exist. At no point is that actually a two or three ingrained into this team or into these players. With reference to how players then would use that, I think a good example, again, is when Andrew was at Celtic and you did have this sort of identifiable 2-3 at the base, Josip Juranovic, who was playing right back, would very often make the underlapping run to pin the opposition fullback so that the space that the winger had was much bigger. And then if the fullback runs out, the winger can play um, Juranovic in, who can then cut the ball back. If you're telling him, you're a 2-3, you're a 2-3, you have to be a 2-3, he's then not going to leave that structure because he's aware, well, my job here is to make this shape. So then you sort of see if the player understands why we're doing this. I want you to come inside when we have the ball and sort of wait for your opportunity so that if we lose it, you're there to win it back. And then he knows, okay, the ball's going up towards the box. I can get away with running forward now. And I think that's the sort of difference where useful to illustrate what's happening. But if you try and push that too far into your analysis, then you run into a series of problems, both in a theoretical um, perspective, but also when you try and relate that to players. Yeah, so there's lots of things to dig out from that. So you started off by talking about how if we're using these shapes as principles to, you know, overall principles to understand what's yeah. going on, um, that's all well and good as long as we don't then start trying to fit the reality onto those shapes because yeah, totally. when you're watching a game, there'll be scenarios where that 2-3 shape or 3-2 shape won't actually be there, yeah. in which case do we call it a different shape? Do we, do we, do we label each of the different uh, players in each, each position? That's not the that's not the point. The point is, is it gives us a little bit of a shorthand to to just be like, well, okay, maybe they're playing with an extra player in the second line rather than the first line. Exactly. That's what a th two three is. Maybe they're playing a three two. That means they've got an extra player in the in the first line. That's going to change the way that the, the dynamic is going to roughly work. But you then went on to talk about. I mean, with Andrew Postecoglou, we know that his his build up structure has a huge amount of flexibility and rotational yeah. capacity built into it. So we talked already about often they'll form that two, three shape by having the two inver fullbacks inverting inside alongside the pivot player. But actually when you watch Ange Postacoglu teams play, often one of those fullbacks will end up in the third line, yeah. uh, which we're not even <laughs> talking about with the two, three shape. And what will happen is one of the eights will then drop in to make sure that the you've, you've still got the overloads in, in the different lines that you need. Um, I, Manchester United, I think, is a good example of that. So I did a a, a podcast um, last season with Case and Aaron of Devils in the Detail podcast where we just spent a few games just watching Manchester United's rest defence to see what that looked like. And one of the things that we picked out was that there's certain situations where you're going to want Casemiro as the defensive midfielder sitting just in front of the defensive line. He, the, the reason why you want to play him there is because he's a very good defensive midfielder. He's a very good defensive player. Yeah. Um certainly when he was younger he was very good at covering a lot of space in order to stop those kind of counter-attack moments um, 
But there's also situ situations where you want Casemiro to be in the box. Um, if you've got the ball, if a fullback has the ball maybe in the half space and you know that there's going to be a cross swung in, you've got Christian Eriksen and Casemiro in the midfield area. You may want Casemiro to be in the box rather than Christian Eriksen. So there's certain principles that obviously Manchester United players are taught so that there'll be scenarios where Casemiro realises I'm okay to go into the box to be able to receive the ball, maybe have a, uh, a dangerous headed chance from. If that happens, you can see other players in that midfield line recognising an unbalance is going to be caused. So one of them's got to drop back as well. So what's happening there is those players, I don't think, are necessarily thinking in terms of we need to retain this shape, but it will be something like there needs to be a plus one in the second line or a plus one in the third line. Those players will be able to look at what's going on. Maybe one of the fullbacks will think, oh, I could go forward here, look back, see that the other fullback has gone forward and say, Oh, because of that, I've got to be careful. I'm going to, I'm going to sit deep. Thinking about what's happening on the pitch in order to translate it to, if we lose the ball at this moment, am I best positioned to, to be able to help my team out? So I guess we're moving away from shape there and starting to think of sub-principles for how defenders need to get into their head to think about what's happening on the field. Yeah, totally. And like an extension of this, um, I'm really glad that you mentioned like specific traits of players because when we deal with complexity in this sort of thing, what we're talking about when we're talking about football performance analysis is essentially sports engineering. And what I mean by that is you have these sort of like quantitative types of analysis, you've mapped it out. Engineering is uh, it's basically the study of systems, right? How the system works, what it does, how it reacts when different things happen. So then you can start to apply engineering theories to this. And there's one that I used, which is dynamic systems theory. And you can view both teams as competing complex systems. And then the main sort of principle of that is that you kind of understand that it's too complex to simplify. You can't just say, do this and this works or anything like that. You start to understand that, well, actually, it's very situational. There's a lot going on. And what you can do is you can look at how it reacts to other stuff. So what happens when certain things happen? How does it reorganize itself? And that's where you get into this. That's important. And relating to players, one theory that often goes alongside this is generally constraints-based theories, mm -hmm. which refer to the sort of essentially things that limit you, what you can and can't do. They, they can be related to the task, to internal stuff or external stuff. But specifically, if you think internally, you have different players. So you could sit here and oversimplify it and say, yep, I think 2-3 rest defense is great because you can count press and win the ball back. If you don't have players that are good in duels, then maybe that's not the right thing for you to be doing. If you have one fullback that's better at something than the other fullback, then that symmetry isn't a given. And the sort of point is that as you start to apply these different things, you realise that oversimplifying it in such a quantitative way where we're using data that just, again, reduces these players to just dots that are all equal, you lose so much information about what's actually happening. So, again, you could look at a 2-3 and you could see a player that doesn't drop into the 2-3 and you could look at that point and say, well, that's wrong. They're playing a 2-3. Maybe it's not wrong. Maybe that player has a limitation that means they shouldn't have done that and the coach has worked with them and said, right, situationally, when the ball goes here, I want you to go here. And... It's not a satisfying answer because obviously when you're looking at quantitative research, people want an objective answer that just says, yes, this is the way. My sort of whole thing here is what if you can't get that answer? What if it is so situational? What if you do need to pair this with qualitative analysis to try and make sense of all this complexity? Yeah, and I think maybe Arsenal is a good example to go mm. to there. Arsenal could play Jorginho as a pivot player or they could play Declan Rice as a pivot player. Now, out of possession those two players have completely different profiles and in different games you're going to get different upsides from them. So, for example, we've seen some games this season where Arsenal aren't too worried about being under constant threat of, of, of defensive transition. In those situations, they'll probably play Jorginho because they may want to you know, have a, have a pivot who um, is, is going to be maybe a little bit more useful for ball progression in certain ways. But against some of the bigger teams, it may be the case that they want to play Declan Rice is that pivot player because he's going to cover a lot more space um, in, in those transitional moments against maybe better attacking players. Um, so I think that that's like a quite nice way of thinking about constraints. Like what constraints do you have from playing one of the players rather than the other? How is that going to impact the, the, the game that you're playing? The other thing that's maybe worth saying at this point as well in terms of the, the rigidity of sh talking about shapes in particular is that the whole context of why we talked about rest defence in the first place, we, we started talking about rest defence because we said what's happening is a shift in football where it's about 
for, for someone like Pep Guardiola, it is about controlling the, the game through controlling the ball, trying to squeeze opponents high up the field, have as more, more possession than, than those opponents. And a lot of the time, the, what, one of the ways you can do that is by feeling as though you've, you're getting more players in attacking situations in order to be more dangerous. So the more players you get forward, the more dangerous your attacks are going to be. The problem is, is that the flip side of that is that the more players you commit forward, the fewer players you have to defend those those transitional moments. And so there's an, a sense in which if you can be flexible in, in the, the use of players that you have in your defensive unit and your attacking unit, then the, the, the more easy it is going to be able to be to negotiate those moments, right? So, um, yeah, like for, for me, talking about shapes is too rigid because a lot of these coaches want to think of flexible ways to, to say, okay, if this player can get forward now, someone else can drop to cover them. You're getting the benefit of, of, of feeling as though you've got more players uh, around the ball in, in, in attacking moments than you, than you uh, maybe necessarily have. So flexibility is important as well. And I think maybe the, the rigidity of saying 2-3, two, 3-2 three, three, two yeah. is, is unhelpful. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is sort of what we've seen generally with the idea of positions as well, where we've seen the shift towards generalism away from sort of like specialism, where previously you maybe had centre-backs who were just really, really good at tackling and winning duels and whatever. Didn't matter if they can play with the ball at the feet because wasn't needed. You had a striker who could just score goals and couldn't do anything else, whatever. And then over time, we've sort of seen, like you say, with flexibility, this idea that, well, actually, what happens if the centre-back brings the ball forward? What happens if the striker drops out and contributes to build-up? And you see these sort of rotations where different players do different things and ask different questions of the defence. And then that means that we've lost this rigidity where in the past you might have had a very rigid 4-4-2 where the centre-back doesn't cross the halfway line and that's it. Now we have it where maybe the centre-back could go for a little run up towards the opposition box and someone else drops in for them. And I think that actually fits really nicely into a trend that we've seen in literature in the past sort of five years or so, six years, where previously attack was analysed because it was the easiest thing to watch. That's what's put on the TV. We look at that and we go, they're doing this to attack. This is how we score goals. And you then produce your quantitative analysis saying, well, if players do that, they score more goals. And that's great. But what we sort of saw around 2016, 17, and especially more in the past year or two, is a shift towards defensive analysis where researchers have started to say, well, actually, it's not really about what the attacker's doing per se. It's about what the defence is doing. And what I mean by that is specifically how coordinated they are, how synchronised they are. Because if there is miscoordination, then the attackers can score goals. And there's a really strong link here. And you can make the argument that the attacker has to force them to be miscoordinated or asynchronised or whatever else. But then it is still that asynchrony because if they stay synchronised somehow, then they're able to stop the attack. And what we saw through this is actually... Probably the biggest justification for this being like a hot topic to research is that if we can link asynchrony and miscoordination to goals scored for the opposition, then transitions are the point to study because that's when a team is least organised because they're having to recover and they're having to reorganise while retreating, which is a really difficult thing to do. And there's plenty of research then from, again, 2016 or so that backs this up where they found that actually the best goal scoring chances are created in transitions. This is where the hotspot for goals is. And that is why if you are a heavy position, uh, possession team like Manchester City or whoever else, it's so important that you manage those transitions because that's where you're going to concede goals. Because if, if the other team gets the ball and builds up or whatever and you can drop back into organised defence, then you're fine because you have elite players that are well coached who can stay organised. So the transitions are the point that you're weak, which then when you look at the game phases that are related, they're not independent. It's your in-possession phase that informs how that transition is going to go, which is why this is such an important topic. Yeah, and Man City against Crystal Palace mm. uh, last weekend, a really good example of that, because Man City, I think, allowed five shots, three of which were outside the box, yeah. um, two of which were very dangerous chances. One was a tap-in, one was a penalty, both of them around 0.8 expected goals, I think, which is you know 80% chance of scoring, so big chances. Now... In a 90-minute game, all Manchester City have done there to drop points is allow two moments which have resulted in very dangerous chances, which is, this is exactly what it is that you're talking about here, that the fact that despite Manchester City being able to control the game for huge swathes of that game, being able to retain possession of the ball, 
because they're so aggressive in their positioning, it allows the opposition these these moments where if they get the transitions right, it can result in much better chances that Manchester City are going to be able to generate necessarily by simply squeezing Crystal Palace into into their own box as well. So yeah, I, I really like that 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 concept of actually what we are looking at when we're trying to work out how best to attack is what the opposition are doing um, defensively, how we can how we can work work weaknesses into those into those situations but also on top of that this concept of transition because transition is something that I've been talking about a lot in terms of out of possession approaches um, in the last couple of years because we we know that teams like to press high and aggressively and player to player but often they will be using a high pressing approach with a with a more conservative lower block and I call this approach hybrid pressing because you're moving moving between two different phases a high aggressive player to player uh, press and then a more conservative zonal block deeper in the field and one thing that I've identified is that teams are now much better at being able to work out how to cause those transitions between a high pressing phase and a dropping um, blocking phase and how to trigger those phases as well and when you bring those two things together suddenly we're starting to see this is an area where you can actually target opponents you can generate these weaknesses within them and then use yeah. that as a, as a dangerous attacking moment yeah for sure i mean like this is the whole thing with deserve's style of play right with the deep build-up this idea that even though it's not a transition you're forcing the same sort of circumstances that a transition occurs in because i mean if you just watched and picked a random game, for example, saw a clip, you'd be forgiven for thinking that actually that was a transition when it was a build-up attack mm, yeah. because they passed so deep that the opposition had moved so high that you are then able to generate the same uncertainty with how they retreat, how they organise, that you would have in a transition. And I guess this is sort of the whole point, and like you said with um, how you press and stuff, this emphasis on the defensive side is where we're seeing it. And there are other things that inform the shift. So just again, like availability of data, the fact that we're more able to study defensive play now than we could five, 10 years ago. This all informs a direction. So it's not just from this is the way we need to go. But as you see with these sort of trends, different things factor in. And one of those is the fact that it is easy to stop opposition. Well, easy if you get your defensive stuff right. Mm-hmm because then they are not able to capitalise on the mistake. And I always think sort of a good example is if you think of a one-on-one with a winger, a lot of the time the winger might start doing step-overs, might feign to go one way and go the other. The point at which they have won that duel is when the defender falls for it and missteps. If the defender never falls for it, always guards them perfectly. The attacker doesn't win that duel. Now, you could say that they have caused that because they did the skill move or whatever it would be that caused the defender to lose synchrony with the situation. But... It is still that moment that they lose coordination, that they become unsynchronized from the defensive unit, that the attacker wins that duel. Yeah, and uh, again, maybe Arsenal a good example of that. This season, Arsenal playing a style of football where they're clearly very, very overpowered in terms of the defensive aspects of the game. And I think myself included, many people were thinking, is this going to be enough to, to win the Premier League? But what we're seeing is Arsenal top of the league right now. Mm. Um, able to defend very well, mm. questions about how they attack, but it's proven to be enough that they can make it so hard for opponents to score against them that all they need to do then is 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 get the singular goal and, and, and they're likely to win games. So I think it will be interesting to see whether or not actual you know clubs at the elite level follow start following the way that the, the research is going, which is to suggest that if you can sort out your defensive uh, structures... Then, then you're well onto the onto the way of being a team that's very hard to beat. Yeah, for sure. And like with coaching, um, I've spoken to all the coaches at the elite level in my um, extensive under eights experience. Um, <laughs> and, but one sort of principle that you have a lot of the time is in the final third, players have a lot more freedom because they're trying to disrupt the defence. So you might have specific situations. So when we talk again about Pep Guardiola and Postecoglou, we know they have very rigid systems. But a big part of that, even within that rigidity is the player having a little bit of attacking freedom. So what I mean by that is the phrase qualitative superiority. So when we say that, we mean essentially most often it's the winger trying to get your good players in 1v1s where the opposition's weaker players. So And that's something that you saw with Ange at Celtic all the time where we would try and just get our wingers in 1v1s with the fullbacks because we've got better players. They then create goals from that. Now, there were specifics like he wanted players to sort of like hit the line, cut the ball back, whatever. But the point is that there is attacking freedom. The player can cut inside, they can do different things. You're just trying to generate those situations to disrupt the defence. Whereas when you're defending, 
there's a lot more control over what you're actually doing there. So it's less about that sort of freedom and more about how you can try and remain organized. So I think from that sort of perspective, it just makes sense to be studying the stuff that you have high control over and then you know put your good players in the position to do what good players do. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk a little bit about transitions in the literature. So how, how are researchers are talking about or interrogating transitions in their analysis what are the sorts of things that they're looking at so so this is really fun because i've spent a lot of sleepless nights on um, this one because first you have to actually define a transition which is a really difficult thing to do because there is no solid objective definition so when you're watching a game you can generally understand but at what point would you say it's a transition versus sort of like possession attack or whatever else how long does a team have to have the ball before it's no longer a transition these sort of things when you're working we've already talked about artificial transitions as well and with exactly, yeah. to Deserby, where it's like generating the same kind of conditions as a transition but doing it through build-up rather than turning the ball over which tends to be yeah. the, the classic definition of what a transition is right exactly and then also if you win the ball back and it's a transition and then you lose the ball is that second transition the same as a first transition? In my research, I called it a micro transition and had that as a variable so I could control from it. But at a certain point, you realize a lot of these defining like sort of traits that we pull out are just arbitrary. So a lot of the time, I think it's three or five consecutive passes, a few seconds, and they will put these sort of limits on it of saying, right, if it's longer than that, it's organized possession. If it's short and you turn the ball over, whatever, this is a transition. But it's all arbitrary. And th- this is a really difficult part of research because a big thing about quantitative research is it's meant to be objective. But objectivity is an illusion because if you're making that decision, you're inserting yourself in that research. If I said, I think a transition is this, I'm going to use this definition, here's my research. And then you said, well, actually, I think a transition is this, we're going to end up with very different answers to the same question that is meant to be objective. So you run into these problems, but when you sort of move past that and look at how different researchers have done it in different leagues and different situations and different definitions, you start to find some similarities that seem to be true in every case. So one thing that seems to be true a lot of the time is that winning the ball back quickly is just generally a positive for your goal scoring and for your defensive record, which stands to reason, right? If you've got the ball back quicker, the other team aren't countering, getting in your box, all this sort of stuff. Um, but again, it depends on whether data is available. A lot of those studies were conducted in like Germany, the MLS. Um, so you have those sort of problems with it. Um, other things that started to seep in around sort of, again, the same year of 2016, 2017, we're starting to look at the spatiotemporal aspects of the transition. And what I mean by that is essentially how it relates to space and time. So position and the duration and things like that. So you would start to look at the start position, what's happening if you're starting sooner um, or 
starting from a wider angle or things like that. What happens if it lasts longer, if the speed of the ball is faster or slower and all these different aspects. And this is where it gets really interesting because this is where we started to get different answers. So you found contradictions within different studies or even within the same study. So a really good example is um, Fortress Research, who is an analyst in Germany, I believe, um, and submitted a few papers around this area for his PhD the latest of which came out, I think, a couple of weeks ago, um, which was on rest defense. And that was excluding my dissertation, the first sort of like academic word on rest defense. And what he had found was that it was true in his research, which was done on Bundesliga data, that winning the ball quicker was a, po- a net positive, but also guarding deeper spaces was a net positive. Right off the bat, Contradiction. You cannot win the ball higher and faster if you are also having your players drop off. And he sort of reached a similar conclusion to me on this, is that when you're looking at these constraints type things and rest defense and how that feeds into it, because we have so many different answers, the natural conclusion should be that essentially it depends. There's no big answer. There's no just win the ball like higher up and you'll win more games. You can have that as your philosophy. And, but if you don't have the players to do that, if you don't have the situation that means that that's the right decision for you, then that's not going to work. So I guess this is the long way of saying that we're not actually sure what works the best because it's different for everyone. The only thing that's consistent from all pieces of research is essentially that transitions lead to more goals and better opportunities because they're so disorganized compared to organized possessions. So you're saying two things here, and that is, I mean, essentially back to the point you made right at the beginning, which was if you have this sort of universalist approach Mm. where you're trying to find the answer to, you know, defensive transitions, then you're not going to get any help in the literature because it's saying in some situations it's better to try and press quicker and higher up the field. In other situations, it may be better to drop deep and and guard your your goal. And the difference between whether or not one of those things is going to work is probably the opposition. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think regional differences are always a really interesting aspect to this because when we're talking about this sort of quantitative research, the general approach is everyone does their study on their data set, their league, their season, whatever else, and you kind of contribute to the wider picture. So then you start to pick up differences where you can say, well, this study said this about transitions and this one said this. This one was conducted in this country. This one was conducted in this one. And then you're kind of jumping to answers of, well, maybe it's different because they play different styles or whatever. But you're not actually still getting to the answer because there's so much contradiction. And my point for a slightly nerdy detail here is that this links to the overall state of literature in general across most subjects in the empirical data quantitative analysis is assumed to be better than qualitative. It's assumed to be more objective. We can point to a fact. And I think the main thing to talk about here is logical positivism, this idea of essentially trying to prove something. We have a hypothesis and we're going to say that is true or that is false. The problem there is that if you can't get to a true or false answer, you kind of have to force one. And that's where you end up with research that's just a little bit unhelpful, where you can say, specifically well it was true that this was true for transitions in 2016 in the Bundesliga for this and it's like well that's fantastic that helps me with nothing right now and I think this is where you kind of have to extend it so like Fortress research was mixed methods rather than just quantitative to try and bring in um, coaches perspectives and things like this and I think that that's kind of the route you have to go down because if you go down this positivist route and you keep trying to find an objective truth if there isn't one objective truth then you're just running into a brick wall. And so the result then is that you're trying to find the conditions within which one or other of those uh, of those approaches works better. And there's going to yeah. be certain leagues where maybe it is better to think about dropping off and, and defending. Yeah, for sure. There's going to be other leagues where actually stepping up, trying to win the ball high, counter-press and counter-attack is going to be better as well. Which brings us to the two key variables in your study, which yes. is compactness and proximity. Yes. Talk to us about about those two things because I think they translate directly to those two ideas that we, we're talking about right compactness is about sitting a little bit deeper and reducing space yeah. proximity is about getting close to opponent players to be able to counter press and win the ball back yeah for sure so the first thing um, to just note is that my study used um, regression analysis which is where you can put like essentially lots of variables in you can control for them you can do different combinations of them or whatever to see how they impact your dependent variable which 
I did change through different ones because like I said, I wanted to shift away from primary objective. So it was tested against things like outcome, the duration, the end location, whatever else of the transition to see. To, so to tease that out, when yes. you say what you what you're saying then is that you're you're changing one of the variables each time just to see what impact it has on on overall things so you can say actually changing this variable means nothing happens therefore this is probably not an important variable but when we change this other variable we can see there was a big change therefore this would suggest that this aspect is more important to what yes we're talking about. so like in total i think there's like over 50 different models that are included in the appendices of my dissertation because there were so many different ways to test it different ways of measuring different combinations of them and also different things that you're testing against so we're saying these variables maybe they relate to the speed of the transition but maybe they don't relate to the outcome so it doesn't make a difference whether goal scored but it can affect the speed which is how i ended up with a conclusion of if we just focus on these sub objectives then we know that we can control them but the reason that i brought up the methodology is because one of the things that you do is you feed in your different independent variables the things that you're saying that are contributing to the variance in your dependent variable the thing you're measuring the outcome of the transition and that means there's different things you can control and these variables are things like speed yeah starting position players around the ball closeness of yeah. yeah so loads of different things that you could put in and like there's loads of different combinations that i did try um like i said before micro transition whether it was or whether it followed like an organized possession or whatever and all these different things the two that i was most interested in that i hypothesized about were compactness and proximity and what i mean by those compactness was the measure of the defending team of essentially how tight together they were how how much space they took up and then proximity how close they were to opposition players. The thing that also needs to be mentioned about this is how you define who the relevant players are. Because this was conducted over a full season's worth of data. I couldn't sit down and watch every game because I only have so much time in the day. Um, so I used a machine learning approach, K-means clustering, which is one that's quite precedented. And it's essentially an unsupervised machine learning algorithm that finds relevant groups that are close to each other. Um, so then the idea was that the group that's identified that's closest to the defending team's goalkeeper is the relevant group that are defending this transition. So then identify the relevant players, see how close they are to each other, see how close they are to the opposition. I tested it at the point of transition. So the second the ball, well, I guess it's down to like the split second, turned over, and then also as a measure of an average throughout the whole transition. And the results are really interesting because there's such an overlap between compactness and proximity, but there are differences. So you can be very compact and then as the opposition moves closer, you're naturally high proximity because all your players are together. So if one of them's close, they're probably all quite close. But then you have other situations where you might be one and not the other. So if you're much more player to player and you're pushing up to them, you're not very compact, but your proximity is very, very high. And as you sort of feed these in, this was essentially meant to be a continuous alternate alternative to using these shapes. Because if you go back to the Spielvelagerung articles that sort of brought this into, I was going to say the mainstream, I'm not sure you can call <laughs> Spielvelagerung the mainstream, but um, into the nerd mainstream anyway. Um, <laughs> the, the things they cite about these different shapes is that if you have a 2-3, you know, you can counter press, you've got this compactness, you know, these different things. So if they're the things that are cited, then we need to essentially work out what they're trying to say is relevant because it's not the shape it's the compactness and essentially what i did find was that these things are relevant not so much to the outcome but very very highly to these other sub objectives so in a lot of cases the r squared value which is the amount of variance you can explain was very very high for the sub objectives but not so high for outcome partly because that's categorical partly because so that means sub objectives are more statistically interesting than than talking about the, the overall yeah. yeah and essentially you have more control over them so yeah. if you're saying you know we're going to play high compactness um and do this or we want higher numerical superiority at the back so we want more players guarding these deep space or whatever it would be it's more easy to draw a link from that to these other things so if you're trying to delay the transition or if you're trying to force them wide and like change the end angle of the transition or whatever else it's easier to make that link than it would be to say if you're compact high proximity whatever then you're not going to concede goals or you're going to win the ball back or what other ever outcome you could have. You can't make the leap straight from that to outcome, but you can make it to these other things. And that's essentially what I'm kind of getting at, that compactness and proximity are clearly from my research, from Fortress research and from general analysis of defence, um, even when organised from transitions, from everything else, clearly very relevant, should be considered in rest defence. But as soon as you try and jump straight from that 
to this end goal, then you're losing a lot of information because there is no one answer. And this is kind of the point that it's too complex to just jump from zero to 100, but you can split that up with your own philosophy, with your own players, with your constraints that you operate within, and then you can end up with something that's actually useful. So what you're saying then is you focus on the sub-objectives and say, well, because we have this player available or because we're playing against this team, yeah. this is, should be the approach that we have. And as a result, it will probably lead us to our end goal quicker than simply having this one-size-fits-all approach to a rest defense. Yeah, for sure. And like another example that actually links in is that you can have something called rest attack, which is essentially if you're defending, how are you prepared to attack that transition? It's just the inverse. Mm-hmm. And teams will do that differently. Some teams might just leave one striker forward. Some teams might leave, you know, a striker and a winger forward or whatever it might be. They might base it off the defence or whatever. But then you have to be able to react to that because you couldn't just say, well, we play a 2-3 and that's that. If they leave four players forward, I don't care. We're still playing a 2-3 or whatever it would be. I don't think anyone really leaves four players forward, but you know what I mean. So I'm sure sure there's someone out there who does. Um, Me, when I finally get into management. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this is the sort of point that... That's another constraint, another situational thing that is not accounted for if you're just trying to find one answer. Whereas if you step away from that idea, if you say, right, don't care about that end answer, but our whole principle is based on compactness because we think that counter-pressing is the way to go. We think that compactness in the central area, we're closer to the ball, we've got more access to the ball, we can win it back faster. That's how we want to play. Then you could say, well, to do that, the whole point is that we have an overload. So we want to play 2-3. So if there's two strikers, we've got three players in that second line. We've got more access to the ball. If they then had three players forward, you could think, well, actually, do we need someone else dropping back? Do we need someone pushing forward? And again, it's this flexibility that you mentioned before. This idea that it's not about the 2-3. It's never been about the 2-3. The 2-3 is just our way of pointing out what's happening. But it's about these principles that operate underneath it. And they will vary from team to team, coach to coach, players to player. If you can understand that better and understand the link between these variables like compactness, proximity and these other sub-objectives, then you're able to better use research to inform your plan than you would be of just trying to jump straight to a proximity is good, so we're going to win games. Mm. So this is uh, comfortably, I think, the the nerdiest episode of (laughs) the TIFO Football Podcast that there has ever been. For the people who've got this far... um, how would you say what, what would you say are the are the basic takeaways from the research so we will we'll have people who are in coaching who will be listening yeah um what would you say to those people in terms of okay i'm thinking more about rest defense how i'm going to structure my team so that we're not we, we, we're going to be able to defend these transitional moments as well as we can what would you say to them are the, the sort of basic principles that you can learn from the research that is out there so i think One of the main things is with compactness specifically, it's about control. It's about guarding those spaces. So if your objective is either to win the ball back faster or just to make the opposition delayed and go wide, then you want high compactness, right? You want to just overload that central area because that's really hard for opposition to play through. So think about maybe inverting inverting fullbacks. Yeah, for sure. Dropping players into it, however you would do it. Then you're less concerned about the first line, more concerned about the second. But generally, you're more concerned just with having players, more players in the same area than the other team have. And I guess that'd be great if you could do that everywhere. But the point would be that if you have them in the second line, they're more likely to be in the same area as the opposition than they would be in the first. (laughs) And the ball. Um, Proximity, I think, is really interesting because... Again, you can have proximity while you're compact. But one of the other things that you generally find with proximity is that it acts as a leveler between quality. So if you have a defender that's right on top of an attacker, very close, then the attacker isn't able to turn, face up, whatever else. If you give them space and there's no compactness and there's no proximity, then they can turn, face up, and they'll be able to run at you and cause problems. And the sort of thing you see here is even in organised defence, why teams that are playing significantly better teams just pack out the box and they just have everyone in the middle. Because the idea then is that in those low proximity situations where quality can really show, it's out on the wing, it's not as important. Whereas if you spread and you said, right, well, we don't want them to have that on the wings, so we close them down, then that's more pro- uh, less proximity in the centre because they have more space and their quality would then show in the centre. That's why teams do that. And that's essentially the same sort of thing that you can draw from this. Um, In terms of speed and stuff, again, these were significant. And the point was that, quite similarly, if you're very compact, the, uh, the transition tends to 
last longer unless you win the ball back. So again, you know, you can look at this versus outcome where I included possession regains as well as goals um, as my variables so that you could see what was happening because obviously you could say that the transitions were really, really long because you were compact and showing them round or you could say they were really, really short because you were winning the ball back higher. So when you separate that out, you can start to see that both those objectives can be done through compactness. And I think when you apply this to the practical side of what actually happens when teams coach transitions, this is pretty much what you see in this idea of if we pack out the centre, the team can't play through, we can recover. And I think a lot of teams do that. When I interviewed for Celtic a while back, the task I had was to scout Buddha Glimt. Um, and obviously, as part of opposition scouting, a lot of the time you split that into the four phases of the game and look at how they play. And I was speaking to a friend about it because I was looking at their transition attack um, approach and it just seemed to be kind of like, get the ball to Solbakken. And I thought that's a little bit simplistic. And I asked a few people who work at like the elite level and stuff and they said, a lot of the time if you're counter-attacking, that's all you're just trying to do. You've got a player, you know the other team are not organised well. If you can get them in a position that's not too wide, then they're going to be able to capitalise on that. And then the inverse of that is, as you're defending it, you essentially just want to pack out the centre, force him out on the wing, and then it takes time because everyone can retreat, recover, and then he doesn't have that advantage of capitalising on you being disorganised. So it sounds like a lot of this stuff is being naturally done by teams anyway. They, you know, the, the research is researching something which makes sense, right? Yeah, it's, for sure. It's, it's taking what, what teams are generally going to be, going to be doing. And, and there's a natural aspect of uh, the evolution of tactics, right, which is... Yeah if something works, then teams are going to start doing it more. And and, and, and so that, that would make sense. That yep. What we're starting to see now is teams having that compactness, particularly centrally in their in their, um, in their their rest defence block. So Man City having that, you know, those five players that they have uh, around the, the, the centre of the field in behind their attacking unit as well. So, yeah, this this to me makes, makes a degree of sense. So... I guess I always like to end these podcasts with a question that sort of points forward a little bit. Mm. So I, I realise this is very speculative, but I wonder what you think the future of this of this sort of research is going to look like. What, where do you think that the, the the key gains are going to be found in rest defence research? And do you think that those um, gains are going to be made more available by the availability of the types and the technology available? To, sorry, the types of data and the kind of technology we have available to be able to analyse that data? Um, or do you think that it will come somewhere else? So if I have my say through mm -hmm. my PhD, then um, I can give you a direct answer on this. <laughs> um, my sort of thing here is essentially trying to bridge the gap between research and practice. So at the minute you have research, which, like I said, with mine, if you start to be one of the first ones doing something that's practical, you're finding things that we already know and you're just sort of adding to that body of work because coaches are already doing this. The problem is a lot of research, um, because it's fallen into this sort of positivist paradigm where it's all about proving things, using quantitative data, this sort of stuff. What you started to see was people who were just focused on making their model the best or whatever. So we'll use XG as an example. There's a lot of practical lessons you can take from XG with where you should shoot from, where it's optimal to do certain things, whatever else. What's not useful is improving the accuracy to another decimal place or whatever else. And as a mathematician, a quantitative analyst, you're really happy if you've done that because that's great. You're doing your job in your field. But that's no use to a coach, a player, an analyst, because how are they going to relay that information? They're not computers. They've already taken certain lessons from it. You sort of hit a point of diminishing returns. And this is kind of where I'm trying to say that the complexity should be addressed in a different way, where if we can start to like essentially layer models where we try and account for more practical things like player quality and different constraints or whatever, our models might not be perfect because there's so much that can go wrong the more you try and factor in these things because a lot of the time, you know, there's not a, an innate sort of like quality metric you can use. You have to use proxies and different things to try and measure that. But if you can go to that and you say, well, actually, my research is maybe not as mathematically precise, you know, it's we're kind of estimating a little bit rather than getting to this level of accuracy, but it's much more practical because we're factoring this and then we can give a lesson for a coach, then I think that's more useful. So... I think the shift towards defence has kind of done that a little bit. I'm hoping that when my dissertation finally goes out into the public, um, I can sort of contribute to research shift in that direction. 
I hope that's the way it goes. Whether it does or not, I guess, is another question. It sounds to me then that what you're saying is is that by focusing on like a universal one-size-fits-all mm. approach, um, actually research is, is moving away from getting to useful answers and you're saying that actually if you focus on some objectives, you, if, you, if, you, if you don't simply try and package off of the complexity um, and, and be aware of the fact that football as a, as a thing that we study is so complex, actually we will get closer to the truth. Yeah, pretty much. Like I think you can sort of look at it through two different lenses. You can look at it as we need a better way of dealing with high complexity, which can be dynamic systems theory, which is sort of, we're not going to get a precise answer. What if we just look at how this system reacts? It can be like sort of, you know, an alternative way of looking at complex data, or it can be like Fortune did and like I recommended at the end of my dissertation. What if we just accept that we're not going to get to a clear answer? What if we start to bring qualitative analysis in and say that this quantitative research suggests this, 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 what does that actually look like on a pitch? How can we make that useful? And it, it's an uphill battle just because I think literature in general frowns upon qualitative data as scientific research in a lot of senses. Um, but I think for performance analysis, at least for the next sort of like five, 10 years, while we try and make sense of this complex data, I think that's the way it kind of has to go if we want to eliminate the gap between practice and research. Well, Stephen, I found that our incredibly interesting um if people want to find out more about the stuff that you're doing or get in touch with you you are on twitter at srfootball underscore yes is there any other way that people could contact you if they wanted to find out more about this stuff i am just on twitter at the minute okay. um i've kind of pulled off social media a little bit but yeah if people want to um, ask me about rest defense on there i could talk about this for hours as you well know <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me